New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, and I'd like to welcome you to this program. I like to think of this as an empowerment hour, where during the next 60 minutes, we are going to talk about the issues that can make an enormous difference in our lives or give us a different perspective. Today, I will be taking issue with all of the celebration that we are putting upon the killing of Osama bin Laden. A commentary from David Swanson, Killing killing Osama, Resolving Nothing, from Counterpunch. I'll ask you for your input. Fourteen signs that collapse of our modern world has already begun, from Mike Adams and Natural News. Also, time permitting, if not in this hour, then certainly on our next program, a very sobering look at what we're not seeing, not reporting at all, anywhere in the American media, not on the left or the right, Death and After in Iraq, by Chris Hedges from Truthdig. What happens if you're one of the Marines like Jess Goodell, who has to go around and clean up the body parts of Americans. We never hear this story. So if we're not willing to look at the full consequence of what it means to be in an environment, then we are in denial. Well, it's a sobering commentary. It is not going to be pleasant to listen to, but I feel it's necessary that we be honest about what we're committed to in these insane wars. Conversation with the Remarkable Minds returns today. A wonderful gentleman, Dr. Tim Flannery. A look at the future of humanity in time of climate change and overpopulation and how we reach this impasse and what it means as a survival to human species. So, we have an awful lot to discuss. Let's begin. I remember I did my first program against soft drinks by speaking with some homemakers in Boston who were concerned about their children's behavior after they would be taking the soft drinks and then going to school. One of the parents noted that when she restricted the soft drinks till after school but not before or during school, that her kids' grades and study all improved. Not a whole lot happened. Only a handful of parents picked up this notion that what our children consume prior to school makes a difference in school. Now, researchers at Columbia University in New York and the Miller School of Medicine Miami have found a significant correlation between diet, soda consumption, and the risk of stroke. So we've moved from those kids who are bouncing off the walls from adversely affecting their blood sugar and their adrenal glands and their attention spans to individuals who don't appreciate the fact that the soda you drink today could cause a stroke today. Even moderate soda consumption, that means just one a day. That's right, daily regular consumption of soft drinks will increase your risk of having a stroke. And it doesn't matter what your status is, if they, they... Equalized all things, meaning ethnicity, gender, exercise, smoking, alcohol consumption, caloric intake. And then they looked at what was left in diet 
or the sodas were what were left, a 61% increase in risk of a stroke over those who drank the sodas and those who did not. So my suggestion is don't drink the sodas. Now, when I did my national debate, and there was a period in my life where I had no real academic credentials at all. I I didn't even have a science background. I had not yet started as a, a scientist in the Institute of Applied Biology, but I was a consumer activist. And for whatever reason, probably because I was the editor of the number one and the only really consumer advocate publication, Caveat Emptor, in the United States, and there were no other employees. We had some volunteers, but I was the one who, along with Rob Burko, put out this publication every month about what was wrong with our pharmaceutical industries and our food supplies. <clears throat> I would be asked to debate. So I went around the country and I began to debate. The head of the Livestock Association, the meat industry, the dairy, the sugar, the toiletry industries, the pesticide industry, hundreds of debates. And one was with the doctor... Elizabeth Whalen, who was from Harvard, and she was and is the head of a group that is very pro-industry. And we debated on NBC, and the debate was about sugar. And it was her view that I was an alarmist, that there was really nothing wrong with sugar in the amounts Americans consumed, and that people shouldn't take anything I said as credible because I didn't graduate from Harvard and didn't have a PhD and and so who was I? <clears throat> I would see that argument used hundreds of times. So who am I? I said, I'm just a concerned citizen. I wasn't aware that truth resides only in those who have academic background. I thought a truth is a truth. And the fact is that you keep bringing on these PhDs and MDs to promote how good something is. You promoted with MDs uh, that DDT was good, not harmful. They were wrong. The saccharin and cyclamates were good. They weren't. They were wrong. In fact, every single public health issue, without exception, the scientists and physicians and PhDs have been wrong. There, there is not even an exception. They were wrong about Agent Orange. They were wrong about low-level radiation. They were wrong about food radiation. They were wrong about genetic engineering. They were wrong about everything. And yet they're only the ones that are allowed to be considered experts. So even after I got all my academic credentials and my honors and all that, it made no difference. And then you see the game is if you are credentialed, but if you go against the existing status quo, you're pushed out and you're marginalized. And the media always goes right along with this order of the day. Hence, anyone who speaks out against nuclear radiation or why we shouldn't have it is now considered a, a tree hugger, you know, a, one of these anti-corporatists. Not true. But they don't allow for open and honest debate. So sugar was always a big issue. And just two weeks ago, the Sunday New York Times Magazine did a feature on the dangers of sugar. I've got three questions. Why, for the last... 40 years, have you not allowed those who had good quality information and referenced information to present it objectively? Why did you allow the quackbusters like Stephen Barrett and others to be quoted as if they were actually experts on anything except bias 
Why, with the resources the Times has, did it not do what could have taken at the most one or two weeks? An objective analysis of the actual scientific literature on the dangers of sugar. So suddenly, now that the New York Times discovers sugar's bad, only now does it become bad. It wasn't bad the day before the article was written. But today, now there's some question. This is how bad the media is, but worse, this is how bad it is when you get your information from sources that are so, so biased. Anyhow, I just wanted to share that. So finally, once again, they're coming around to saying what we've been saying all along. You drink the sugar, whether it's in one cola or another or in, in some other drink, you're in a, going to end up increasing your risk of a stroke or other diseases. Now, one thing that is good is melatonin. Now, melatonin is what your body secretes. It's a natural hormone. It's produced in the pineal gland. And during your sleep cycle, it's released, and it can help a lot of things, in your immune system in particular. But University of Granada and the University Hospital of San Cicillo in Granada found that melatonin helps you lose weight. I would suggest one to three milligrams a day. But you can also get melatonin from mustard, goji, berries, almonds, sunflower seeds, cardamom, fennel, coriander, and cherries. And one of the best is cherries. So the more cherries you eat, the healthier you're going to be. And also cherries can help turn off gouty arthritis, other problems. I've recommended for health of the eyes different nutrients, lycopene, um, very important Quercetin, anything is going to trap the free radicals that cause oxidative stress in the eye, leading to glycoma, cataract, and macular degeneration. There's a nutrient, it's called astaxanthin. Astaxanthin, it's A S T A X A N T H I N. In fact, that's what gives the, um, the pink in a pigment in salmon. But it's really good. It helps prevent obesity. So not only now do we find out this nutrient reduces oxidative stress in the eye, protecting your vision, it also reduces oxidative stress if you're overweight or obese. Seoul National University reported that 5 to 20 milligrams of the nutrient for three weeks was able to help people lose weight. So that's another reason to use it. So it's a little pink nutrient. Not very many people use it, but it's good and helps you. I've mentioned time and again that the earlier a child is taught good nutrition, the healthier the metabolism, and that will make a difference later. They'll be less likely to have diabetes, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, mental impairment as they age. Here's the latest on this. This is from the neonatal department of hospitals in uh, Lyon, France. It says, a study has found that nutrition during the first days or weeks of life may have long-term consequences on health, potentially via a phenomenon known as the metabolic programming effect. Now, in lay language, metabolic programming is the concept that differences in nutritional experiences at critical periods early in life can program a person's metabolism and health for the future. And researchers compare growth and body composition and blood pressure in three groups of healthy full-term newborns in the department. And then one was breastfed for the first four months of life. 
The others were randomly to receive a low-protein formula um, or a high-protein formula. And both protein content of both formulas were within the recommended levels. And after four months, uh, then they took a look and did measurements, and they followed these children. They found that as early as 15 days of life, blood insulin levels were lower in, bl- in breastfed infants and in formula-fed infants. <clears throat> That's a big, big positive. Why? Because elevated insulin can lead to type 1 di- diabetes or type 2 diabetes. It can adversely affect metabolism, making a person more susceptible to hormonal imbalances. Quote, the long-term consequences of such changes in humans may play a role in later health. You bet. And also, one last thing. You've heard me say that there's no such thing as being overweight and healthy. Even if you can't feel uh, different things going on in your biochemistry, like, oh, let's say, DNA damage. You can't feel it. It's happening. That's why it's so important not to be overweight. I've also said that any amount of alcohol is dangerous. And people say, oh, well, my doctor said I should have a certain amount of medicine uh, as alcohol, and it will keep me healthy. It's insane. There is no science to back that up whatsoever. Here's the latest in the Medical Journal of Australia. Quote, <clears throat> No amount of alcohol is good. Any amount of alcohol can give you cancer. I'll quote this in the Times of India. In a shocking new revelation, a new report from the Cancer Council has warned that any amount of alcohol can give you cancer regardless of your drinking levels. So, alcohol is carcinogenic. That we know. That is not in dispute anywhere in the scientific literature. Quote, there's convincing evidence that alcohol is a cause of cancer of the mouth, larynx, esophagus, bowel, breast, unquote. So, now we are told that alcohol in any amount can cause cancer, and that is the truth of it. So, I suggest get rid of all alcohol. You don't need it, and it's not, shouldn't be in your system. Because every single piece of of literature shows that alcohol will destroy liver cells. And you don't want that. And that's why we have an epidemic in the United States of of, uh, fatty livers. And finally, diabetic, forget pills, pop an almond. Quote, eating almonds has a positive effect on reducing low-density cholesterol and also improves insulin sensitivity, so it does help in pushing diabetes away, unquote. And that was from Dr. Gupta, head of clinical operation at the uh, Fortis C-Doc Hospital. Quote, it is a healthy source of fiber, protein, and calories, and has been found to have a positive effect in reducing bad cholesterol and improving insulin sensitivity. Well, We know that diabetes is caused where there's a deficiency of the insulin hormone, which controls blood sugar levels, and then you end up fatigued or excessively thirsty or frequent urination. So now you get rid of uh, the bad foods, start eating high-fiber foods and nuts. They play a major, major issue in your life. 
For those of you who think it's okay not to sleep properly, soundly, and fully, those of you who have insomnia, those of you who are staying up too late at night, those of you using cell phones or computers and getting electromagnetic pulsed energy that's adversely affecting your pineal gland and therefore not allowing you to secrete melatonin, which is the whole purpose of the brain being able to go into a deep sleep so you can secrete hormones and rebalance, you've just knocked seven years off your life. Quote, this is from the period journal Sleep. Women and men who begin sleeping more or less than six to eight hours a night are likely to age by four to seven years. So sleep deprivation and sleeplessness have very adverse effects on performance, response time, errors of commission, and attention and concentration. And also, proper sleep has been found to be linked to a wide range of quality of life measures, like social functioning, mental and physical health, and early death. Quote, the main result to come out of our study was that adverse changes in sleep duration appear to be associated with poor cognitive function in middle age, and also then that you're going to live seven years less. That's a big, big less. I'm Gary and all back in a moment. Please stay with us. about uh, 20 minutes now will be Dr. Timothy Flannery, and we will be doing a Conversations with Remarkable Minds, and we're going to look at the future of the survival of the human species, and especially in light of some things that are happening with our environment. And I'm working on a lot of that right now, and I'll share some of the latest research I have on that in a few moments. But first... A commentary from David Swanson. And then I would like for you to call in. I'll give you our number to call in so that you can share your points of view. The plane I was on landed in Washington, D.C. Sunday night, and the pilot came on the intercom to tell everyone to celebrate. Our government had killed Osama bin Laden. This was better than winning the Super Bowl, he said. Set aside for the moment uh, the morality of cheering for the killing of any human being, which, despite the pilot's prompting, nobody on the plane did. In purely real politic terms, killing foreign leaders, whom we previously supported, has been an ongoing disaster. Our killing of Saddam Hussein has been followed by years of war and hundreds of thousands of pointless deaths. Our attempts to kill Gaddafi have killed his children and grandchildren will end no war if they eventually succeed. Our attempts to kill Osama bin Laden, including wars 
Justified by that mission have involved nearly a decade of senseless slaughter in Afghanistan and the rest of the ongoing global generational war that is consuming our nation. The Taliban was willing to turn bin Laden over for trial both before and after September 11, 2001. Instead, our government opted for years of bloody warfare, and in the end it was police action, investigation, a raid, and a summary execution, and not the warfare that reportedly tracked bin Laden down in Pakistan. After capturing him, our government representatives did not hold him for trial. They killed him and carried away his dead body. Killing will lead only to more killing. There will be no review of bin Laden's alleged crimes, as a trial would have provided There will be no review of earlier U.S. support for bin Laden. There will be no review of U.S. failures to prevent the September 11th attacks. Instead, there will be bitterness, hatred, and more violence, with a message being communicated to all sides that might makes right and murder is the way in which someone is, in President Obama's words, brought to justice. Nothing is actually resolved, nothing concluded, and nothing to be celebrated in taking away life. If we want something to celebrate here, we should celebrate the end of one of the pieces of war propaganda that has driven the past decade of brutality and death. But I'm not going to celebrate that until appropriate action follows. Nothing makes for peace like ceasing the wage of war. Now would be an ideal time to give that a try. Our senseless wars in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, and Libya must be ended. Keeping bin Laden alive and threatening assisting in keeping the war machine churning its bloody way through cities and flesh for years, no wonder President Bush was, as he said, not interested in tracking bin Laden down. Ending the wars was our moral duty last week exactly as this week. But if the symbolism to be found in the removal of a key propaganda piece can be combined with the recent overwhelming U.S. support for ending the wars, to actually end the wars, then I'll be ready with clean hands and no nasty gleam of revenge in my eye to pop open the champagne. But let's return to the morality of cheering for the killing of a human being. A decade ago, that would not have been seen as a natural way that a U.S. air pilot would have spoken. The automatic assumption would not have been that there could be no dissenters to that celebration. A decade ago, torture was considered irredeemably evil. A decade ago, we believed people should have fair trials before they're declared guilty or killed. A decade ago, if a president had announced his new power to assassinate Americans, at least a few people would have asked where in the world he got that power to assassinate non-Americans. Is it too late to go back 10 years in time in some particular ways? As we put bin Laden behind us, can we put the degradation of our civil liberties and our representative government and our honesty, accountability, and the rule of law behind us too? Can we recover the basic moral decency that we used to be at the very least pretend and aspire to? Not while we're dancing in the streets to celebrate death. Imagine the propaganda that the U.S. media could make a video footage of a foreign country uh, where the primitive brutes are dancing in the streets to celebrate the murder of a tribal enemy. This is the propaganda we've just handed those who will view bin Laden as a martyr. When their revenge comes, we will now know exactly what we're supposed to do, exact more revenge, and turn to keep the cycle going. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But the blind people think they can still see. The world looks to them like a Hollywood adventure movie, 
In those stories, killing someone generally causes a happy ending. That misconception is responsible for piles and piles of corpses, to which more will now be added. End quote. Those are his thoughts. I'd like to hear your thoughts. And one more. This is a little longer, but I feel very important. This is not for everyone. Some people may not want to hear this, in which case I suggest that you not listen. This is from Chris Hedges. This is from truthdig.com, and it's called Death and After in Iraq. But if we do not have the courage to face all of the consequences, intended or not, of our actions in another country to our own uh, American soldiers and to the civilians, and all we can do is find room in the media and talking heads to praise how gallant, how heroic, how terrific our efforts are in Pakistan, Afghanistan, or anywhere else in the world, and we don't pay attention to what the other people there are suffering from, then we should pay attention to this. Jess Goodell enlisted in the Marines immediately after she graduated from high school in 2001. She volunteered three years later to serve in the Marine Corps, first officially declared Mortuary Affairs Unit at Camp al Takadam in Iraq. Her job for eight months was to collect and catalog the bodies and personal effects of dead Marines. She put the remains of young Marines in body bags and placed the bags in metal boxes. Being, before being shipped to Dover Air Force Base, the boxes were stored, often for days, in a refrigerated unit known as the reefer. The work she did was called processing. Quote, we went through everything, she said when I reached her by phone in Buffalo, New York, where she's about to become a student in a Ph.D. program in counseling at the University of Buffalo. We would get everything that the body had on it when the Marine died. Everyone had a copy of the rules of engagement in their left breast pocket. You found notes that people had written to each other. You found lists. Lists were common, the things they wanted to do when they got home or food they wanted to eat. The most difficult were the pictures. Everyone had a picture of their wife or kids or their family. And then you had the younger kids who might be 18 years old, and they had prom pictures or pictures next to, to what I imagine were their first cars. Everybody had a spoon in their flak jacket. There were pens and trash and wrappers and MRE food. All of it would get sent back to the Marines' homes. We had all... we. We all had the idea that at any point this could happen and we could be on the table. I think Marines thought that we went over there to die. And so people wrote letters saying, if I die, I want you to know I love you. I want my car to go to my younger brother. Things like that. They carried those pictures on their bodies. We had a Marine that we processed in going through his wallet he had a picture of a sonogram of a fetus of his wife. Had sent him. A lot of Marines had tattoos on their vital information and their armpit. It was called a meat tag. The unit processed about a half a dozen suicides. The suicide notes almost always citing hazing. Women, she said, were constantly harassed, especially sexually. But it often did not match the systematic punishment and humiliation meted out to men who were deemed to be inadequate Marines. She said that Marines who were overweight or unable to do the physical training were subjected to withering verbal and physical abuse. They were called fat nasties and crap bags. 
the RAS Marines would be assigned to other Marines and become their slaves. They would be sent on punishing runs in which many of them vomited. They'd be forced to bear crawl, walk on all fours, the length of a football field and back. This would be followed by sets of donkey uh, bends, grabbing the ankles, crouching down like a baseball catcher, and then standing up again, followed by a series of other exercises that went on until the Marine collapsed. They make these Marines do what they call bitch work, Goodell said. They're assigned to do someone else's bitch work for the day. We had a guy in our platoon, not in Iraq, but in California, he was overweight. He was on remedial PT, which meant he went to extra physical training. When he came to work, he was rotated. One day he was with this corporal or this sergeant. One day he was sent to me. I had him for an hour. I remember sending him outside and making him carry things. It was very common for them to dig a hole and fill it back up with sand or carry sandbags up to the top of a hill and then carry him back down again. The unit was sent to collect the bodies of the Marines who killed themselves, usually by putting rifles in their chins and, and pulling the trigger. We had a Marine who was in a portage on when he blew his face off. We had another Marine who shot himself through the neck. Often they would do it in the corner of a bunker in an abandoned building. We had a couple that did it in a portage on. We had to go in and peel and pull off chunks of flesh and brain tissue that had sprayed the walls. Those were the most frustrating bodies to get. On those bodies, we also had cleanup crew. It was gross. We sent the suicide notes home with the bodies. We had the paperwork to do fingerprinting, but we started getting bodies in which there weren't enough hand or party parts. It was just meat. And in May, we would we'll publish a memoir called Shade It Back, Death and After in Iraq. The book title refers to the form that requires those in the mortuary unit to shade in black the body parts that were missing from a corpse. Very quickly became irrelevant to have a fingerprint page to fill out. By the time we would get to a body, it might have been a while and rigor mortis had set in. Their hands were usually clenched as if they were still holding the rifle. We could not unbend their fingers. The unit was also sent to collect Marines killed by improvised explosive devices, IEDs. The members would arrive on the scene and don white plastic suits and gloves and face masks. One of the first convoys we went to was one where the Army had been traveling over a bridge and an IED had exploded. It had literally shot a seven-ton truck over the side and down into a ravine. Marines were already down in the ravine. We were just getting out of our vehicle. We were putting on our gloves and putting coverings over our boots. I was with a Marine named Panetta. I was coming around the Humvee, and there was a spot on the ground that was a circle. I looked at it and thought something must have exploded here or near here. I went over to look at it, and I looked in, and I saw a boot. Then I noticed the boot had a foot in it. I almost lost my lunch. In the seven-ton truck, the body of the assistant driver, who was in the passenger seat, was trapped in the vehicle. All of his body was in the vehicle. We had to crawl in there and get it out. It was charred. Panada and I pulled the burnt upper torso of the, of the person out of the truck. Then we removed a leg. Some of the remains had to be scooped up by putting out hands together as though we were a cupping water. That was very common. A lot of the deaths from the IEDs or explosions. You might have an upper torso, but you needed to scoop the rest of the remains into a body bag. It was very common to have body bags that when you picked them up, they would sink in the middle because they fill with flesh. 
The contents do not resemble a human body. The members of the mortuary unit were shunned by the other Marines. The stench of dead flesh clung to our uniforms, hair and skin and fingers. Two members of the mortuary unit began to disintegrate psychologically. One began to take a box of NyQuil tablets every day and drank large quantities of cold medicine. He was eventually medevaced out of Iraq. Our camis would be stained with blood or with brains. When you scoop up the meat, it often will get into the cuffs of your shirts. You could smell it even after you took off your clothes. We weren't washing our chemis every day. Your cuffs come to your face when you eat. Physically, we were stained with remains. We had a constant smell like rotten meat, which I guess is what it was since our bodies had been in the sun and the heat for a long time. The flesh had gone bad. The skin on the body and the hot sun slides off. The skin detaches itself from the layer beneath and slides around on itself. Our platoon was to the Marines what the Marines are to much of America. We did things we had that had to be done, but that no one wanted to know about. The other Marines knew what we did, but they did not want to think it could have been them. I had one female Marine in my tent who would not talk to me. The rest would not even give me the time of day. The Marines in mortuary affairs knew that any day could be our day. Other Marines who have to go out on the convoys, who have to get up the next day, have to get on with life. Her unit once had to recover two Marines who had drowned in a lake. It appeared one had leapt in to save the other. The bodies, which were recovered after a couple of days by Navy divers, were grotesquely swollen. One of the Marines was so bloated and misshapen that the body was difficult to carry on a litter. His neck was as wide as his bloated head, and his stomach jutted out like a barrel. His testicles were the size of cantaloupes. His face was white and puffy and thick. Not fat, but thick. It was unreal. He looked like a movie prop, with thick gray waxy skin and thick purple lips. We couldn't stop looking at these bodies because they were so out of proportion and so disfigured, and because still they looked like us. It was hardest to look into the faces of the dead. She and other members of the mortuary unit swiftly covered their faces when they worked on the bodies. They avoided looking at the eyes of the corpses. Once, the unit had to process seven Marines killed in an explosion. Seven or eight body bags were delivered to the bunker. We had to clean body bags set up so we could sort the flesh. Something sometimes comes with the name tags, or sometimes one is Hispanic and you could tell it he was Hispanic, and then you couldn't because so much flesh had separated. It was ridiculous. We would open up a body bag and there was nothing but vaporized flesh. There were not four hands in one bag, not even a whole leg. And that's the way it was. Now, in the quote, here is my thought on this. <clears throat> Think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans, soldiers who have died. That is their untold story. We will only see them going off to war. We will see them uh, or their family talking as they should about the best of them being remembered and their, their fondest thoughts. We won't see the reality of their suffering, their pain, or their death. We glorify this as if these people have given the ultimate sacrifice for something that is meaningful. It is not. And yet, if our president and members of Congress and the Supreme Court, if our governors and legislators 
they're the ones in the major media who should be the first in battle and war. Let them see what it's like to be injured, or let them see what it's like to put someone by piece by piece into a body bag, and then see when you had a full democratic power, they controlled the House, they controlled the Senate, they controlled the White House, yet they did not bring back the Americans safely and end these disastrous, foolish, and fraudulent wars. So as we celebrate Osama bin Laden's death, do we have any more responsibility to stop for a moment and understand that every day we are celebrating the death of Americans we will never see, we will not see their death, it will not be on any video, and yet they are still dead. For what? For freedom? No. To make the better world safer from terrorists like Osama bin Laden? No. No, it's about oil, it's about gas, it's about geopolitics, it's about control, it's about the military-industrial complex, and we all know that. And if we don't, we should. And so the next time Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity or someone gets up to pronounce how brave them are, these individuals, let them spend that time, as this Marine did, putting the parts together to send home of what once was a vital, loving, caring human being who believed in this. Right back to our program. We're going to take a few calls. My guest is patiently standing by. We're going to go to him shortly, but this is too important not to allow people in this audience to speak out. Let us begin with Bill from New York City. Bill, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Gary. Bill Gilson, member of Veterans for Peace, New York City. Some thoughts on your comments on David Swanson's article. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's spot on. I find that the message of justice from our president rings extremely hollow. All we have done is shown the world that state terrorism trumps individual terrorism. We have now become them. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Mark from New Jersey, you're on the air. I just wanted to share a quick story that really illustrates some of the things you've been talking about today. Um, I'm writing a book about a Holocaust survivor. And he told me a story about when, when the war ended in Germany and he was liberated in the camps. Uh, the prisoners in the camp, they were going to kill this uh, German SS guard, you know, who had been brutal to them. And right at the moment when they were going to kill him, an American lieutenant came in and said, no, he stopped them. And he said, this isn't right, he said, and my name is Lieutenant Cohen. I'm a Jew like you are, but this isn't the right thing to do. We're going to try this man in a court of law. And he's going to have a fair trial, and then if he's guilty, he's going to be found, you know, he's going to be executed or whatever. But this isn't the right way. And I thought of that story when you were reading a thing about the pilot telling people to cheer and how far we've come as a country from that generation of World War II. You know, they did things that were just as terrible and brutal as, as war is today, but it was a different kind of energy. It was a different feeling. They wouldn't have gloated over something like that. And, and certainly with the Osama bin Laden, there's nothing to celebrate. Even if killing him would end this whole war, which of course it wouldn't, there's nothing to celebrate about the, the, the terrible 
the way we've fallen as a country, you know, just our moral compass. And, and I thought that story from that Holocaust survivor really, really illustrates it. Thank you very much, Mark. One last one. Let's say hello to um, Donna from New Jersey. Donna? Hi, uh, Gary. I just, I really feel just distraught about how people are celebrating. Um, and I, I don't, I don't really have answers to why, why we're at war. And I feel like it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard call. Like part of me feels like, well, we're doing the best we can to create peace and get rid of terrorism. And war is just not easy. And, you know, I, I'm just at a loss for, white people are celebrating, but I do understand that a lot of people are still in pain. A lot of people, especially in Manhattan, experienced friends dying in 9-11. They remember the smoke. They remember all the suffering. And even here in Jersey, where I am, in my town, actually, we have several firefighters that went over who, who died. And, you know, I, I'm, I sympathize with those victims as well. I sympathize that we were violated, that they were at our doorfront and hurting us. And so I on one hand, I understand people have some relief and maybe feel, you know, like we've won something. On the other hand, I'm I'm torn because one, like you said, eye for an eye is, is, it just makes us all blind. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's now go over and say hello to my guest who's standing by. Thank you for patiently standing by, Dr. Tim Flannery. It's uh, a great pleasure, Gary. It's good to be with you. Dr. Flannery has been considered one of the most famous scientists of our time. He is an Australian uh, paleontologist, ecologist, global warming activist. He was among the first scientists in the world to sound the alarm for tracking the problem of climate change. In addition to his professorship, uh, he is also Australia's first chief commissioner for climate change, and he is the author of some very important work on the topic, including Here on Earth, A Natural History of the Planet. You adhere to the Gaia theory of British scholar James Lovelock, uh, who's been a guest on this program. However, you also refer to the Medea hypothesis that was first stated by Peter Ward. Basically, um, you say that species will, if left unchecked, destroy themselves by exploiting their resources to the point of ecosystem collapse. So if you would, please, take all the time you want. Uh, I'd like for you to give us a real education on this. I'd like for you to expand upon this theory, and then in evolutionary terms, when you look at other species who have played out the Medea thesis in the past, how are humans on the same course if we are, and what are the underlying motivations for humans to cannibalize themselves? And then finally, how is it that humans can be so aware of a threat to their existence and it be so passive and unconcerned about it simultaneously? The form is yours. Thanks, Gary. And look, those questions that you've put to me are really at the heart of, of, of this book and also, I think, at the forefront of our challenge to live more sustainably and to give ourselves a future. You know, on the one, on the one hand is a, is a belief system, really, uh, which is that the world is a survival of the fittest world, uh, a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so if we don't grab the advantage now, someone will grab it from us. Um, and a sort of a fatalistic belief system that the world is, is somehow doomed by this selfishness. And uh, the scientist, uh, Peter Ward, who developed the hypothesis, says that, you know, while that may be true for us, it's also been true for species throughout geological time and that the, that the great extinction events that we've seen in the past, at least most of them, have been caused by the very success of life itself. 
Uh, now, I find that thesis, a, um, I, I don't agree with it at a number of levels. One, I think it comes from a profound misreading of the evolutionary process and of what Charles Darwin taught us. Uh, and the other reason is it's just fatalistic and, and it potentially self-fulfilling in that, that fatalism. Uh, and it just doesn't reflect the world that, that I see around me and that scientists uh, are investigating around us. The world that we live in is not a survival of the fittest world. It's a world uh, of intense cooperation, complexity and co-evolution. Our own bodies are a great example of this. You know, the 10% of our body weight is made up of other species and we can't live without them. They're bacteria and fungi and microorganisms of all sorts that allow us to digest our food and protect our skin and, and do other jobs for us. So even us individual human beings are ecosystems of nearly planetary complexity. So when you look at the planet as a whole and look at the cooperation that runs that planet and coevolution that runs that planet, you, you see that life gives us the the clean water we need, the food we need, the shelter, everything. It just creates the world, a world that is fully habitable for life. So the big question for us is, um, we, have we got it within us to be part of that system, to live more cooperatively and to, uh, to somehow be a positive force for good on the planet rather than a negative one as the Medea hypothesis might suggest? I think we do have that within us. I think we can already see in this growing global superorganism, if you want, or global growing civilization that we're currently forging, that we are cooperating. We can see the spread of democracy in North Africa and the Middle East right now as a manifestation of that. We can see the, the good work that's been done to address climate change at the Copenhagen meeting and afterwards as another manifestation. Now that may not be happening fast enough um, and it may be unsatisfactory the extent of it to many but we are making progress and we've got to look at things over the right time scale to, to see how much progress we're in fact making. Now, you know, only six years ago, Al Gore uh, had, uh, we hadn't heard of an inconvenient truth. He hadn't released it yet, you know. And look how far we've come in those six years. We've done a lot. You know, looking at the daily news cycle, trying to work out whether we're overcoming these problems or not. It's a bit like investing some money in your retirement fund and then looking at the stock market every five minutes to see if you're going to retire wealthy or poor. It just doesn't work. I appreciate those insights. Thank you. As you are probably very aware, there has been two major mindsets on population control. One is those of the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, others who would like to see um, vaccines or contraceptive, um, contraceptive vaccines given in Africa to the poorest people so they simply could not produce more children. Another is to look at, do we really have a, shortages, a shortage of food or do we have um, a, a mismanagement of the resources we have? I would like for you to address what you see the problem and the solutions to be for the increasing population and the decreasing resources to support that group. Sure. Look, this is one area where there is some real cause for optimism because the latest UN projections of 
global population suggests that the population will peak 40 years from now at around 9 billion people given the current trajectory. And what, what, that's happening because this thing called the demographic transition is, is spreading throughout the world. It started in Europe and the US a century ago and it, it came about because people became affluent, um, limited their family size because they wanted to have something for themselves and to give their children a better future. That, that has now spread um, throughout much of the developing world. The last holdout areas are the 46 poorest countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. But we can see even there now the demographic transition starting to take hold as people become more affluent and better educated. There's, there's over 300 million middle-class Africans now, which is a cause for great hope. Um, if we're really lucky, the population will stabilise at 8 billion rather than 9 billion by 2050. And, and we have to do our part to make that happen. We have to make sure our aid budgets are focused on, on the poorest, uh, empowering them, educating women, giving them a better quality of life. So that's, that's, I think, the reality on the ground. Trying to force people to do something has never worked for, for us human beings. Uh, we are deeply independent and um, we, we, we need to make these decisions ourselves. It's just fortunate that in our own biology is this propensity to limit our own population. Now it's going to be a big task to feed those eight or nine billion people or perhaps even a few more if we're unlucky uh, sustainably on planet Earth. We're going to have to work at that and the only way forward that the agronomists are telling us now really is through deeper understanding of ecology and to make sure that our food production systems are ecologically beneficial so you, you forge a win-win situation. In my own country of Australia we're really at the forefront of this. Despite our droughts and our poor agricultural conditions we've managed to increase our cropping uh, values by 50% over the last two decades largely as a result of innovations in, in agriculture which allow farmers to sow crops right into the, into the ecosystem, into the perennial grasslands. Uh, it sounds like a small thing to do but actually it's, it's, it's a dramatic change in our understanding of how agriculture and ecosystems can work together to complement each other. So um, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic that we are going to get a population of somewhere between 8 and 9 billion in 40 years time and thereafter a slow decline and that we will be able to feed those people despite the growing affluence and of course uh, provide all the energy they need and the only way that's going to happen is by addressing climate change emphatically getting away from fossil fuels and moving to the to the clean energy economy we know that the government has a thousand employees working out in colorado at an institute that is working on renewables you almost never hear a word about them most environmentalists don't even know this place exists and it has been there a long time we also know that many other people around the world, especially in Germany and in Israel, they're coming up with new forms of solar power. There's new wave energy. I just met with the person who's the director and filmed him of this. Uh, the, in fact, they've got a model in the East River where they're, where, where they're using wave currents and it's turning and causing electricity off the, off the power of, uh, of the current in the East River. And there, you could do these all over the place. So bring us up to date on what could be the good news facing those who want to get off the grid as individuals and as groups and then motivate those within towns and cities and states to do the same. 
Well, Gary, the good news there is you can already get off the grid if you want. I live off the grid in Australia. Um, now, admittedly, we get a bit more sunshine than you guys do, so our solar panels are effective all year, but it's, it's by no means impossible to live off the grid um, wherever you want to, basically, these days, um, or at least by green energy, by and large. Um, What's happening at the moment is that the, the price of fossil fuels is simply increasing and increasing and increasing, and you'll see that at the, reflected at the pump, the petrol pump. Um, the price of renewables is dramatically falling, so the price of just conventional solar panels is dropping 20% per year as a result of vertical integration of the industry in China and, and a growing economy of scale. We are, we are heading towards this transition, regardless of what the Republicans want or think, this is happening. It's just being dictated by economics and, and other factors. Um, but we need to hasten it because every year we delay means that the greenhouse gas burden builds, um, we have less stable climate, it's going to be more difficult to feed those 8 to 9 billion people, rising sea levels are going to uh, cost us more and more. So we need, we need to hasten this energy transition. And you're quite right, the innovation in this space is just astonishing, especially in this country, in the USA. You know, and, and in California with your emissions trading scheme that will start there in a few months, that will drive that innovation even faster. The good news for Americans is that you committed to reducing your greenhouse gas emissions by 17% uh, at the Copenhagen meeting in 2009 and every other major country pledged reductions as well. You've actually achieved 9% of that emissions reduction as of this year. So you've got a bit more to go, but I'm sort of quietly confident that the, the work the President's doing and his team is doing is going to deliver those, those uh, additional reductions in good time. And then we need to be ready as of 2020 to push the reduction curve even steeper because the job ahead of us is huge. Well, we thank you for the work you're doing, and I want people to read your book. It's very important because it's a real eye-opener. It shows the hope is there if we connect and start to use our collective voices. My, I live off the grid. My entire house, uh, my water pumps, my wells, all are solar. And now with this new, I'm, I'm creating a, a sustainable uh, homestead showing all forms of water and windmills and what you can do with them and all the newest technologies. I believe all we have to do is get this information to the average person and let them see you have one or two choices. You can either become more educated and aware and participate in renewables, or you can continue to believe that we only have nuclear, gas, coal, and um, biofuels and you're going to go one way or the other. That's, and I'm hopeful that people become aware. But if they read your book that uh, called Here on Earth, A Natural History of the Planet, that helps them better understand what we have to do to get in alignment with our global initiatives. Give us your website, please. Um, the best one is, is Grove Atlantic, um, my, my publisher. Um, I'm, I'm not really a, a great web person, but the, the Atlantic uh, Monthly Press website will be good. And just to make people aware, Gary, there is an app for the book, an iPod app, which is good fun as well. It's got a bit more information in it. So for the tech-savvy people, that, that's probably a good option. We look forward to another conversation with you. Thanks so much, Gary, and you're living the future, mate. Great stuff. Thank you. Dr. Tim Flannery, professor and quite simply one of the most uh, remarkable scientists and environmentalists in the world.
The Gary Null Show is produced in our New York City studio. The producer is Richard Gale. The engineer is Matt Bogart. All shows are archived by Joe Kempf. The chief archivist is Sharon Pride. And the program director is Jason Taubenfeld. 